Tonko. Yay. Valadeo. Nay. Van Dyne. Nay. Van Orden. Nay. Vargas. And our fellow Americans may be Yay. watching wondering, how does the greatest Vasquez. country in the world have a process Yay. so broken that Easy. it would be laughed out of the rooms in the halls of Yay. the state legislatures where many of us come from? Let's be clear why we're here. The incentive structure in this town is completely broken. We no longer value loyalty, integrity, competence, or collaboration. Instead, we have descended to a place where clicks, TV hits, and the never-ending quest for the most mediocre taste of celebrity drives decisions and encourages juvenile behavior that is so far beneath this esteemed body. Just a sideshow, just a puppet show, just something to keep the hamsters on the hamster wheel as they continue to back people up against a calendar. On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. It's a crisis that strikes in the people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. We are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast, Episode 40. I'm your host and producer, Dr. Jack Miller. The title of this episode, Bread or Circuses, is a play on the old expression, give them bread and circuses and they'll be happy, which is itself derived from a quote by a Roman satirist who wrote, two things only the people anxiously desire, bread and circuses. The Roman government at the time kept the Roman populace satisfied by distributing free food and staging huge spectacles such as parades and gladiator contests. I call this episode Bread or Circuses because I think the and isn't deserved in this epoch of American history. What we seem to be getting from our high politicians today is one without the other, a circus of performative politics without the bread of policy outcomes. Another well-known expression, this one from Jesus, who was himself quoting Moses, is, man shall not live on bread alone. That's Matthew 4.4 for those of you who want to fact check my Bible references. Unlike the ancient Romans who got circuses to go with their bread, we are, in a sense, living on circuses alone. At least that's the common impression. Americans have never really liked what we've seen of high politics, at least since Watergate, which is half a century ago now, and probably since much earlier, maybe all the way back to the mid-19th century, when literacy spread and regular people could read about the doings of their so-called leaders. The outrage and disgust many people feel today goes way back, though it does seem to be stronger with every passing year. This episode is dedicated to exploring one source of that disgust, the apparent brokenness of Washington, D.C. in general and of Congress in particular, 
especially the dysfunctional House of Representatives, which at the time that I'm recording this has been 22 days without a speaker, preventing all legislative business from getting done as government shutdowns loom in only a few weeks and another war has broken out, this one in Israel. Maybe you're listening to this after all of this has been resolved. There could be a new speaker who's navigated through the difficulties and produced a budget agreement on time and aid for Israel. But even if that's the case, I don't think anyone is going to be predicting a smooth road ahead for the House or Congress or the federal government as a whole. And even if there is, we've got a potentially very tumultuous, even horrifying presidential election coming up in just over 12 months, with the first primary starting in about 100 days. 100 days. So I feel pretty confident predicting that the widespread feeling that Washington is broken won't be in the rearview mirror no matter when you're listening to this. Cue the ominous music. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, your British correspondent on American politics. I'm talking with Dr. Jack Miller today about Congress, which he refers to as the two-ring circus. Why don't we start off with why you refer to Congress this way, Dr. Miller? Well, you know, the perception widely held by many Americans of Congress is that it's exactly that. It's a circus. It's a bunch of clowns. It's a bunch of jokers. It's at best entertaining, uh, but not really functional in any way. So that the circus metaphor seems to fit neatly in people's perceptions, but I also think that it fits kind of the actual structure and operation of the way Congress works. Politics for a really long time has been or was, I would say, transactional. The voters were transacting with their elected officials, saying, we'll give you our votes and you give us the things that we wanted. And politicians would transact with each other to trade their votes and make deals to give other elected officials things they wanted so that they could then turn around and give the voters the things that they wanted. Transactional. And while that can sound very, I would say, morally problematic or not very democratic, it actually is a functional way of conducting a democratic system. You give the voters what they want by making deals with other people who are trying to give the voters what they want. That, in a way, gives us outcomes that respond to the public will. Isn't that what American politics is always about? These transactions, as you call them? How has that changed? What I think we are seeing in the 21st century is a transition from transactional politics to performative politics, where what elected officials are doing is they're giving performances to the voters, not benefits. They are putting on a show for them, which has always been the case. You know, politics is always somewhat performative, but as if that performance sort of was layered on top of a fundamental transaction, then it was pretty much transactional politics. There's not really a lot of transactioning going on. Elected officials aren't really giving their voters much except for emotional gratification, uh, which, however, often comes not in a positive sense of like, oh, I'm very pleased or happy uh, or joyful about what's happening, but negative emotions. We're giving you outrage, anger, a uh, sense of victimhood and grievance that helps you to feel, I don't know. I mean, I guess those things make people feel good. They don't make me feel good. But uh, I do recognize they make a lot of people feel good, or at least they satisfy them. So politicians are putting on performances that give people feelings, but not benefits. And the things that give people those feelings are performances. Gonna have a three-ring circus someday. People will say it's a fine one, son. Gonna have a three-ring circus someday. 
Well, I can confirm that the recordings were in the 1023. Remember, I was with Senator Grassley when we saw the unredacted version. Okay, so because Grassley was saying alleged yesterday. So these recordings are legit. You can confirm they are legitimate. Well, they, they were, I can confirm they were listed in the 1023 that the FBI redacted. I we see. don't know if they're legit or not, but we know that the foreign national claims he has them. Okay, so when can you confirm that they're legit? Because if they're legit, look into it. This is the problem. The FBI never investigated this. Watching parents continue to bury their children because they sent them to school, or they sent them to a movie theater, or they went to a grocery store, or they were in a church, or they were in a synagogue, is despicable. And so, look, I know you guys are busy. I know you got stuff going on. You're trying to find, you know, the fake informant that you've now has gone missing. I know you're busy with that. You know, but I'm hoping that perhaps the Oversight Committee, if they're so worried about, you know, federal overreach, perhaps they can start, you know, being focused on real government oversight. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Hurry, hurry, hurry to ring number two. See what they do in the Congress. Passing laws and juggling bills. Oh, it's quite a thrill in the Politicians have always been somewhat like clowns, right? Putting on makeup with a false face and, and sort of juggling and tumbling and doing the various things that clowns do to keep people distracted. Underneath the clown makeup was also a deal maker. Now, really, the clown makeup is pretty much what there is. Uh, and so it makes even more sense to me to talk about Congress as a circus where what we're seeing are performances rather than transactions. And I think that that explains uh, a lot of, one, the growing dissatisfaction with Congress because people aren't getting what they vote for. They're, they, they vote for still getting benefits and services and policy changes. And while those things are still happening to a certain extent, they're not really a prominent part of what Congress is churning out. Congress is not churning out legislation, policy changes, improvements, solutions to problems that people are facing. So people are dissatisfied, but they're getting something. They're getting this performance. So they're getting a circus. They're not getting their bread, but they're getting their circus. The Pothole Problem Podcast is supported in part by the Center for Public Service, a valued community member in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. The Center for Public Service provides individuals, public sector organizations, and nonprofits with access to the intellectual resources and practical experiences of the Hatfield School to help improve governance, civic capacity, and public management locally, regionally, nationally, and around the globe. The Center supports public service organizations with consulting services and applied research in a variety of areas, from human resources and sustainable development to disaster preparedness and cultural communication. The center has multiple subunits, including the Institute for Tribal Government, the Nonprofit Institute, and the Initiative for Community and Disaster Resilience. The center also develops the knowledge and skills of present and future public service leaders through student engagement, professional development, and public service fellowships. The center offers non-credit courses and professional certificates and hosts seminars, panels, webinars, and conferences. To find out more about the Center for Public Service, go to pdx.edu and search for Center for Public Service, or find the direct link on the affiliates page of our website and in the show notes for this episode. know that there's a lot of fear that a broken Congress means a broken United States government. But congressional dysfunction and inaction are nothing new, 
Whether it's a good thing or not, the other two branches of government are able to step into the void when Congress can't get the job done. Here to discuss this is another segment from the Two Ring Circus podcast that provides some perspective on what happens when Congress can't or won't act. Complaints about the brokenness of Congress are far from new, but there's at least one thing Congress has been doing for over 100 years now to address this problem. Ever since the 1913 Federal Reserve Act created the Fed to enact monetary policy, Congress has been creating executive agencies and endowing them with quasi-legislative power to ensure that its job of setting policy in a timely and effective manner gets done, even when it can itself act. For this final segment, we turn once more to Nigel Wilkerson for a report on this century of steady legislative outsourcing by Congresses of both parties. As early as 1948, in his speech before the Democratic National Convention, President Harry Truman went straight after congressional dysfunction and the failed promises of the congressional majority. The Republican platform cries about cruelly high prices. I have been trying to get them to do something about high prices ever since they met the first time. I wonder if they think they can fool the people of the United States with such poppycock as that. They could do this job in 15 days if they wanted to do it. They're going to try to dodge their responsibility. Campaigning against Congress has been a staple of presidential rhetoric ever since. We know what to do. Congress needs to act. Let me be clear about something. If this Congress refuses to act, we need a new Congress. While facing complaints from presidents for its failure to take action, Congress has in fact frequently taken action to transfer some of its legislative power to the executive branch where decisions are much easier to make. The Fed is only one of numerous examples of independent executive agencies endowed with wide-ranging policymaking power that one would think the Constitution has reserved solely for the legislative branch. There are literally dozens of agencies, commissions, and administrative bodies that exercise powers that are indistinguishable from the legislative powers Congress allegedly holds. And they have produced volume after volume of federal regulations that have all the force of law, as though they had been passed by Congress itself. I spoke one more time with Dr. Miller about this 100-plus year trend of congressional decline. Yeah, the fact is, the executive branch today exercises nearly all the lawmaking power vested in the federal government by the Constitution. He says that the exception to this trend is tax policy and the budget, which is clear that Congress could not and will not transfer to the president. All the real fights in Congress today center around must-pass budget and debt ceiling legislation and tax policy, which, while not must-pass, is definitely an area where Congress is unlikely to give the president additional power. And even if it did, it's unlikely that such a law would withstand Supreme Court scrutiny. Dr. Miller also says that congressional inaction means a kind of de facto outsourcing to the judiciary as well. With the Supreme Court willing to dismantle acts of Congress such as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act and the Voting Rights Act, legislation that has managed to pass goes to the scrapyard. Yet the court frequently leaves the door open for future legislation to address the gaps left by its rulings. There are any number of cases where the court has struck down portions of federal law while specifically noting that Congress is still free to take action in accordance with its ruling, or that Congress has power to legislate that the courts themselves lack. Shelby County v. Holder and Rucho v. Common Cause are two clear examples from the recent past that I know you've covered in your podcast. In Shelby County, the court didn't say that the idea of preclearance itself is unconstitutional, merely that Congress needs to keep the preclearance formula up to date, and that were it to do so with a revised reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, it could in fact subject new state and local voting laws to federal preclearance requirements. The act imposes current burdens and must be based on current political conditions as we warned four years ago in Northwest Austin. If Congress had started from scratch when it extended the challenge provisions in 2006, it plainly could not have enacted the present coverage formula. When taking such extraordinary steps as subjecting state legislation to preclearance in Washington, Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes speaks to current conditions. The coverage formula, unchanged for 40 years, plainly does not do so 
and therefore we have no choice but to find that it violates the Constitution. And in Rucho, the court was very clear that Congress, in addition to the states, possesses the constitutional power to regulate the districting process and eliminate gerrymandering. The only place the Constitution even refers to the electoral process is in the Elections Clause, where, as I've explained, it assigns authority to make the rules to state legislatures subject to review by Congress. The Freedom to Vote Act, introduced in 2021, would have taken up the court on its offer. Of course, as we've explored in various ways on this show, congressional action on big issues, arduous under the best of circumstances, is extremely unlikely under current political conditions. Efforts by Senate Democrats to strengthen voting rights and overhaul the nation's election systems have failed yet again. Republican lawmakers voted down the bill for a third time on Wednesday. The measure failed 49 yeas to 51 nays along party lines. That is far short of the 60 votes needed. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer changed his vote at the last minute in a procedural maneuver that will allow him to bring it up again. Senate Democrats say the Freedom to Vote Act represents a major step forward in promoting racial justice and equity for all Americans. They promise it will thwart restrictive voting measures being passed in Republican-led states. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell calls the measure, quote, an election takeover scheme. It's just really unfortunate that the Supreme Court has indicated multiple pathways for acceptable legislative action that Congress simply isn't able to follow. I understand why you Americans love to hate Congress, but if you want to avoid slipping beneath an increasingly imperial presidency and the seemingly anti-democratic Supreme Court, you need Congress to work effectively to do its job, now more than ever. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting from America. Okay, well, I hope that gives some perspective on dysfunction on display in Congress right now and maybe reduces the painful outrage and gnawing fear that everything is going to hell, if only a little bit. In the next episode, we'll be back to the interview format, so you'll get a chance to hear some voices other than my own and my alter egos. I'm going to end this episode with a song that I featured on the very first episode of the Pothole Problem podcast four years ago. I think it's even more relevant today amid the House speakership battle than it was back then. This is Greg Weinger, sticking it to the man. Thanks for listening. Woke up the other day, and I was the man. After years of getting away with whatever I can. Looked my buddies in the eyes, said, fellas, it's been nice. But I know what y'all been up to that ain't right. Now when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. I ain't taking it in the can, won't turn the other cheek. Get your collective asses in line, or tonight I'll have you working overtime. When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. Those two-hour lunches are a thing of the past. And you'll find my coffee-stained dockers out in the trash. Now you see I'm dressed for success My shirt is tucked and my pants are pressed My mustache is trimmed, my hair is all compressed When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me I ain't taking it in the can, turn the other cheek Check your time cards if you're wise 
got both of my eyes on those office supplies When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me Sticking it to me. When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. 